when you feel stuck, concentrate your efforts on helping somebody else get unstuck. If you just simply go out and help somebody else, find they don't have to be in recovery, but just find somebody else and, and offer yourself up and your service to them. It's a miracle what happens when you stop focusing so heavily on your own stuff. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Singh here, and we are super grateful that you are joining us on another episode. So today we have a previous guest and friend of the show on Charlie Engel. So for those of you that are in ultra running and the ultra running community, you'd know Charlie. He is one of the OGs in adventure racing. You know, he's run across the Sahara Desert literally like day on day. He has multiple bad water starts and finishes, and the guys just run crazy, crazy distances. Now, Charlie's very charismatic, too. He comes with a very colorful history. Um, you know, the guy has been through a lot. So Charlie recently turned 30 years in terms of his sobriety. So it was a 30-year anniversary for him in terms of continuous sobriety, no mind-altering drugs, no mood-enhancing substances, and no alcohol. And today, we have him on the show to talk about how he's done that. And for those of us that aim to, you know, really be sustainable in this performance piece, you know, I'm not an advocate, and I'm not trying to tell anyone how to live their lives, but the closer that we can live and the more consistency that we can live a clean life, the better we will perform, the more consistent and stable and strong we will be. So this isn't necessarily a conversation that is geared towards getting you to be abstinent, but it's really geared towards getting you to think about what your relationship is like with alcohol or whatever else you may indulge in. And you know, Charlie delivers his story in his usual colorful way. We dive into his history, his relationship with alcohol, his relationship with drugs, and how he has been able to stay sober day on day, you know, whilst living on life's terms, things happen, ups and downs of life. And, you know, believe me, after 30 years, Charlie is still energetically you know, just as hyped as he used to be. He's got as much chaos as he, you know, used to have in terms of, you know, the ups and downs of life. But he's found a way to stay sober and stay sober for a very long time. And it's a story that's worth unpacking for those of you that are interested in getting sober or staying sober or just revisiting your relationship with alcohol or whatever it may be in your case. Anyways, folks, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Charlie. Enjoy the episode. Please rate this podcast and really, really grateful again for the time that you are giving us here at Ultra Habits. Peace out. Let me ask you a question, Charlie. As a, a person that is got high energy and obviously in recovery, and a person that likes to move, how do you ensure that you're not just addicted to movement? Like, like, and you're actually focusing on the essentials and the priorities. Like, cause that, you know, before we started recording, you were effectively saying that movement and what can be perceived as valuable movement is sometimes uh, uh, it's just useless, right? Like it's just, just more stuff. Like, how do you make sure that you're actually moving towards what's important? Well, I mean, dude, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I don't assure that, you know, and, and, I, and I, and I screw it up regularly, you know, and I, I mean, I'll actually give it to you in an example of, of actual movement because, you know, I've got a knee problem right now. I've had it for a couple of years. I've got a couple little, there's a lot of wear and tear. There's a lot of miles on this body. And I know intellectually that what I need to do is to take some time off and to focus my energy on healing practices for a while. And that means like 
going to the gym and doing the 30 minute routine that my movement specialist has given me to do. And like, I, I know that that's how I'm going to strengthen my quads and my glutes and the air, you know, I'm going to, these are things that I know are problems that are preventing me from being a better, healthier runner. Yet it's still hard as shit to do it because what I want to do when I get a little stressed or like I've just been busy all day, all I want to do is put on my shoes and run out the door. Like that's what I want to do. That's the default. Charlie, what's it like getting older and, you know, accumulating physical issues when you have the mindset and the habituation of a runner? Like, has that been an adjustment? It sucks sometimes. I mean, I, I, I'm totally transparent about it and I, you, you, you would have no reason to know this, but I will be 60 next month. And, you know, and so it is, it's funny how, (laughs) what's it, I mean, 59 and 60, it's just one year apart, but it feels more monumental, of course, getting into a new deck. The previous decades have all seemed like, oh, great, I'm in a new age category. Maybe I'll win, maybe I'll win the local 5k, right? You're now a master. What category are you in the in the ultras now? Like I've been a master for twenty damn years now, so I can't win shit in that category. <laughs> all the forty year olds are kicking my ass. So you know, um, I mean, I've got some interesting choices in front of me in this next period, and I was just speaking to my wife uh, about because she's gone, she's been going through some. I think you know some significant health challenges the last few years, and so. Her health is kind of always a topic in our house, uh, and as it should be, and hers is hers is life and death. So the things that we're working on are very serious. With me, they're my version of life and death, you know, because to me, not being able to exercise or move my body the way I want to is frustrating. It's um, painful. It makes me feel a little hopeless some days. And so... Uh, but I, but I am I, like, I have an opportunity. I don't, we'll talk about this again in the future, but I, like, I have a chance to go, I'll just, I'll just say in general what it is. I have a chance to go to a program, um, for a few months that is related to like hyperbaric chamber and tons of testing. And it's a lot of, um, mental health, um, work because I mean, I, you know, going way back to my teens, I had a couple of really serious concussions uh, playing football and then mountain bike accidents later. And I hit my head more hard more than a few times. And, you know, I feel like those, I don't know. To say I feel like they affect me, I don't, I don't know. The older I get, when I wake up feeling a little foggy in the morning and, and lacking, you know, the energy that I've had in the past, like part of me is like going, okay, is there, can I do something about this? Like, is there a fix that I can do that's just a psychological thing? Or is there maybe, like, I've never had a brain scan. So to get to go to um, a place where that's the starting point, brain scans, overall analysis of general health and well-being, and then digging in specifically on the issues and the problems, and then having a three-month-long program where I am working on those things like who gets to do that i mean no almost almost none of us in our lives gets to like take the time to go do something where we are specifically just like we start programs whether it's nutrition or exercise or breath work or doing some you know uh doing a deepak chopra meditation program or whatever it might be those are all wonderful Right. Those are all wonderful things to do and they're amazing, but like they're rarely focused and concentrated over a period of time. And what is, I ask myself, what is more important? What could be more important than actually taking the time as I turn 60 years old to not only evaluate where am I really right now? (laughs) What condition are my joints in? How is my brain? like all of these things and then saying, okay, I'm going to focus on trying to fix these things or improve them over a period of time. And let's see how that serves me down the road. 
yet I'm still the same guy. I'm still built the same way. I want to just put on my shoes and go run right now because it makes me feel good today. So I feel crazy by not doing that. It's interesting as well, like being known as the running man, right? Like in such a entrenched identity piece and then kind of having to shift and understand there might be some, there's finite elements there, right? I mean, of course people are running. I mean, someone just ran Badwater. I think the dude was like 79 years old, right? Like, I mean, Oh yeah, Bob Bob Becker, yeah. I'm sure it's one of your friends. So it is. Before you move on, so yeah, I need to like Google real quick and check like is there the cycling man? Has somebody done that already? Because you know <laughs> You'll find something, dude. Exactly. I yeah, mean if I'm if, I have Charlie to be Engel. A, if I've got yeah. to be the kayaking man or the <laughs> or the you know, the wheelchair man, like I'm I'm gonna find a way. Uh, and I think most of your listeners probably feel the same way. Like as long as your attitude is, uh, there may come a day, and I get asked all the time, "What happens if you can't run?" I'm like, I don't know, but I am. I'm a hundred percent certain that I'll find something else to do. It's always interesting when you talk to cyclists that were runners, and when you they can't run because their their knees or whatever. When you bring up running, like there's this like, oh, I miss it. You know, like it's just like they're on the bike, but it's like, oh, you don't. I mean, I've never been a cyclist, but I've always looked at them like with my nose up on the trails because I'm like, yeah, on a bike, right? Like, come on, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I assume it's hard, but you, I don't, I don't know if you'd get the same kind of hit like, you know, you and I need. I, I can't get myself on a bike and I, and I am a pretty good cyclist, but I can't quite get myself to that same place of discomfort on a bike that I can while running. And, and that, that does, that's the one thing that I, I would miss if I couldn't run. You know, my, my hope is that if I can't run, if the, if the day comes, I can't run like competitively, whatever that means, or even as far as I want to go, that I'll find a way to continue to use running, you know, and walking. I mean, honestly, it's about being outside and being on my feet. And like, we, you know what I'm talking about. And most of your listeners do too. It's just that connection you have to the, to the earth that you can't actually get in really any other way. Yeah. To talk about it in, you know, the, the circles that we move in and, and that kind of philosophy, like you may, it may actually give you an opportunity to evolve as well. Like who knows what Charlie beyond the running and you'll always be involved with running and that will always be a key part of your message, but you will evolve because that's how you are. Right. And that's the way you live your life. And you and I may not have a view on what that looks like today. Right. It's kind of just understanding that, you know, uh, there's an evolutionary process there. So I want to talk about the fact that you're 30 years sober, like for a lot of people, that's like mind blowing. Right. Like I was talking to a young guy who, um, you know, is in uh, some of the circles I'm in and he's just newly sober. And like for him, a week or two weeks or a month is like mind blowing in itself, like 30 years of continuous sobriety. I want to talk about the elements of how you have been able to do that when you reflect on that. So for those that don't know, can you explain to the listeners what your relationship to alcohol and drugs were? Sure. I mean, I mean, for me, it was, uh, (laughs) it was the only important relationship in my life, you know, for a long time. It was Everything else that I did, even the successful, positive things were in service of my desire and need to manipulate, acquire, and set the stage for the next binge or the next drunk or whatever it was. And I mean, that's a, it's a weird thing to say, but it's taken a long time. You know, I've understood this for quite a while, but even I was a binger, a really, really heavy duty binger for, you know, about 12 years. And so there were periods of time during those 12 years where I, I cleaned up, you know, I, whether that was for a week or a month, or even I had six months one time of sobriety during that, that decade or so. And, and yet I knew 
deep in my, in the core of my brain, I always knew I was going to use or drink again. So in a weird way, every act, and I don't care if it was going to the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving day to serve the homeless, or if it was, you know, showing up for a family member's, you know, wedding or funeral, like all those things, I looked at them as, you know, brownie point check marks in the good Charlie box. Um, because I knew that the, the bad thing was coming whenever it was going to come and that I would need all those uh, check marks on the good side to remind me and those around me that 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 wasn't all of me, the bad part. But it was it was it's devious and it's difficult. And I appreciate you mentioning the 30 years. You know, it's uh, uh, as you know, it just happened last weekend. And my way of celebrating, of course, is different than most people's. Um, you know, I, I run for the same number of hours, you know, to equal my years sober. So I ran for 30 hours, uh, you know, in a, in a on a two mile loop. But it was around a, an addiction treatment center in Maryland, an amazing, an amazing place that I work with regularly, a nonprofit. And they're phenomenal. And like to there's truly nothing better than to have a bunch of patients who are in rehab. I mean, so we're talking about people who days before or weeks before, you know, had a needle in their arm or a pipe in their mouth or whatever it was, and they were in hell. I mean, absolute hell. And for them to maybe pull some inspiration or just hope by being able to participate in something like this. So many of them came out, they weren't required, but many of them were given the opportunity to come out and walk or run a couple of loops and spend time. There were several hundred people uh, on the campus of Ashley Addiction Treatment Center in Maryland. And, you know, for them to have that interaction kind of with regular, regular people, although a lot of them were sober, it, it was important. And it's, I think it's that kind of thing that I still very much, um, you know, I, I live for and I, and I want, you know, I, I don't believe it's attraction rather than promotion is the, is the old saying that we, most of us in recovery know. And it's this idea that, uh, you know, if you're ever sitting on the sofa telling your kids to go outside and play, you know, you're missing the point. You know, it's it's about, you know, if you want your kids to go outside and play, go outside and play with them. And I know it can't happen all the time, but if it if you're not showing other people how to do a thing rather than telling them how to do it, then you, you're I, I think you're going to miss the mark. And so this event allowed me to do something, invite other people to do it with me and just step back and watch the magic happen. One observation from your story is that, <clears throat> and you mentioned it earlier, like how even when you went to the soup kitchen, it was to get this kind of internal credit. So you knew when you wrote yourself off, you it, throughout there, your story, there's this thread of like cognitive dissonance. Like you were always in this inner struggle of balance and, and you would almost run to purge. It was almost like you beat yourself up through running. And then you get sober. How did running change for you and the way that you viewed running when you initially got sober? And how did running support you in early recovery? Yeah, it's a great question because I, I, I did. You nailed it. I mean, I, um, I use running as a form of um, punishment because it's reliable suffering. I knew how to make myself hurt, like literally physically hurt through running. And, but I knew how to like, <laughs> I guess in a weird way, not to make a, a too indelicate a comparison, it's a little bit like knowing just how much to do when you're, when you're drinking or drugging. I mean, I went over that line many times, but like you, you know, you try to stay on that razor's edge of, of, you know, what you're doing. And with running, I knew how to like, just get there to that edge and then pull back just enough to be able to stay right there in that painful spot. And 
what I trusted, even during the years of addiction, was that 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 painful spot would be revealing in some way for me. So there there would come a moment during that run where the right thought would pop up or the the right realization, the thing that I needed to be thinking about or focusing on would come to the top of my mind. And that I so I kind of learned that that only came through <laughs> I needed to bring myself to a pain point where I couldn't think about anything else. Like, that's how I looked at it. Like, because, you know, we all know as runners, if you're running and you're, you're hyper-focused on, I mean, there comes a point where you, you're no longer thinking about the grocery list or paying your rent or all the other stuff that might run through your mind on a casual run. You're now hyper-focused on the pain. And I liked that. And it took me years to figure out how to sort of use that to my advantage and not use it, you know, and I, I, I still admit today, there are times when I go out for a run where, for whatever reason, maybe I'm not feeling great about myself at this moment. And I will, I will dive into that pain in a, in a way that um, is still cleansing for me. And the difference is, I haven't accumulated the same kind of damage in recent years. I'm not out there hurting people. I'm not, you know, if I'm, if I need to apologize for something, I'm usually pretty quick to do it. I mean, the, the difference is back in the day, I accumulated so much shit that I felt like I had to make up for all the time that running was a, a way to kind of address that. If that makes sense, you know, now, you know, I'm certainly far from perfect, but in a, in a general world, I'm not, I'm not hiding from people. I'm not running away from my actions or big mistakes that I've made. I'm just like living daily life and, you know, running still is the best way for me to connect to my deepest feeling, simply put. In terms of recovery and having the support of a group, why, or sorry, do you feel that that helps people stay sober versus doing it alone? And why? Like, what do you think is and rest in the power of the group? I mean, it's it's everything, honestly, because it's I look, man, after 30 years, I can't tell you how many people come up to me and say, you know, I just I don't want to do AA. AA is not for me or NA is not for me or church isn't for me, or, you know, I'm not a God person, whatever they might say. I mean, literally, I've heard it all, and I've heard it all a hundred times. And, you know, I don't ever tell a person that they're wrong, because that's not my, that's not my business. And it's not, it's not for me to say that they're wrong. I might be thinking they're wrong. A lot of times a person, of course, will, you know, they'll go to one AA meeting, they'll hear the word God in the meeting, and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, this isn't for me. You know, sometimes you have to stay around long enough to like get the message and then decide which parts of it you can use. And as my first sponsor said way back when, you know, you, you, you take what you can use and you leave the rest. So you might sit through a whole hour of a meeting but when is this not true? I mean, I don't care if in your business life and you're in other parts of life, you sit through a whole hour of something, there might only be two little nuggets <laughs> that you take that, from it. If that, right. sometimes, yeah, totally, yeah. And mm -hmm. the rest of it's like, you know, I don't have room in my brain for all that other nonsense. It's not what I want. But the, your, your question about, you know, community and fellowship is what I heard you say. And that's the, that's the important part. I'm lucky. Because I, have, I don't just rely on one community. I have a recovery community. I have a running community. I have a, you know, I've been vegan for a long time. So I have a, I mean, kind of a vegan community. And, um, you know, and there's, there's actually, there's way more than that. So there are, I make myself available and uh, a willing participant in those communities. And like, if I don't show up for a while, somebody's going to ask, somebody's going to text me or call me and say, Hey, haven't seen you for a bit. What's going on? And like, if you're not part of some community that someone actually notices, if you're missing, then you're, you're, in my opinion, you need to make yourself more available. Like you, you, 
it, it's also my way of being of service. I am someone that's very publicly sober. I publicly run and pretty much anybody knows if they have a question about those two things and there's something that I can share with them, whatever knowledge I have, I'm, I'll happily share with them. And by making that available, I, I, I think that I, I am of service to others in that way. And as my first sponsor said all those years ago, you know, to keep it, you have to give it away. Like whatever, whatever your gift is, whatever that thing that you've developed expertise in, if you're not sharing it openly with other people without the expectation of a return, <laughs> you know, if the only reason you're sharing is because you're going to get something out of it, I don't know. I don't think that's sustainable. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not condemning anybody, but I think, you know, you, you, you want to occasionally just be able to like offer something up without expectation of anybody even saying thank you. Right. I mean, it, that's not the way life always works. Sometimes you do stuff and nobody thanks you, but you know, you did it. And so you, you ha I, my goal is to find that place inside me where I'm okay with just knowing that I did my best effort to help somebody else. And I think that's what community is all about. Yeah, a lot of people ask me around, you know, how to shift habits and how to start to orientate themselves in a new direction. And the answer that I give is surrounding yourself in the community of people that are moving in that direction and ahead of you. And I've learned that through 12-step recovery. The challenge, I think, with people that want to isolate and do their own get sober piece is they're the smartest person in the room, right? Like there's no illustrative examples. There's no one to sanity check their thinking. There's no one to challenge them. There's no expansion around them. And ultimately, you know, when I see a lot of people come into addiction recovery, 12 steps, and they, they're like, I got this, I'm going to do it on my own. But I think what's secretly happening unbeknownst to them is their ego is looking to isolate them and ultimately take them out. I think they don't think that, but for me to try to do it alone as an addict or an alcoholic is nearly impossible. Uh, in that in that um, vein, in terms of using, you know, twelve step recovery, what's your view on the steps as a process? Like now that you've been in recovery for thirty years, what do you feel about the steps and why they're so transformative? Yeah, I mean, you said so many important things right there. And, um, I can go run a hundred miles by myself too, but I don't know. I mean, and I've done it a few times and it's, and there is something powerful and transformative, but honestly, the, <laughs> the joy of being around other people that have a common goal and having shared suffering, you know, the favorite part of what happened last weekend with this 30 hour run, I invited all these people there to, to be there with me and to do this event. And there were hundreds of people, but only about 30 of them did I invite to come be there for all 30 hours, like overnight. And, you know, those sort of magical times in the middle of the night, three o'clock in the morning, the people are a little loopy. And but the, the absolute favorite thing that happened to me was that, I would look, it's a two mile loop and I would look across, you know, I could see a quarter of a mile across a big field and I would see two people walking or running together who I knew the day before they had never met each other before. They are laughing. Like I can even kind of hear them and I can hear their voices. And at the end of this thing, like they're, they're hugging each other and saying, I love you. And like, like that, that power can't happen alone. And it's the same with recovery. It's, you know, the, the struggle and the journey that you have in sharing that with other people uh, is where it, those are the parts of the journey that you remember. Nobody ever remembers a marathon like the first 15 miles. If they were just easy. You don't even remember anything until until things get difficult. And if you're by yourself and they're difficult, 
A, you're almost certainly, you have a much higher likelihood of not getting through that sober. Um, you know, and B, so what if you do? I mean, we all know that, I mean, drinking wasn't my problem. You know, everything else was my problem. You know, the, the drinking was simply the symptom, the manifestation of the, the hurt and the pain that I had. And I know this is cliche, but, you know, we have all known people who have quit on their own and pretty much to a person that I know who's in that circumstance, you know, they they are fairly miserable people to be around, <laughs> you know, because I mean, all the things that made them struggle and that, you know, kind of created the person that that they drank over you know, all the other underlying things are still there and they're just not, they're just not drinking. So, you know, that's, I'm sure that's not everybody. And there might be some, I don't know though. I mean, sure. There's people out there that I'm sure have quit on their own and maybe they're happy and they communicate well and all of that. But you're, the, the, the point is doing something in a vacuum where you're not sharing the struggle with other people and allowing them to feed off of your energy, like, because that's the power. If you feel stuck, I mean, you know this, we've talked about it before. It, people ask me all the time, what do I do when I feel stuck in my sobriety? I'm like, that's the easiest question I ever get. When you feel stuck, concentrate your efforts on helping somebody else get unstuck. If you just simply go out and help somebody else, find they don't have to be in recovery, but just find somebody else and and offer yourself up and your service to them. It's a miracle what happens when you stop focusing so heavily on your own stuff. Yeah, without the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, there's effectively no dojo to spar and grow. There's no accountability. There's no reorientation of values because no one, you don't have to. And that's where I think you're saying, like, when you go at it alone, you're effectively the same person that drank, unless you go down your own personal journey of growth. But then again, you need to find a community. I think that's accountable. And obviously, 12-step recovery is the most successful community. And so it's funny to me, people that leave, it's almost they look at me proudly and say, I'm going to do it alone. Like, there's this kind of sense of stoicism about it like i've got this and well it's like okay well you're missing the point it's not about going at it alone it's about evolving as a human that's the bigger picture here that's it and you asked about the 12 steps and i didn't answer that part of the question but i mean i i still you know i still talk about steps with my sponsor i still talk about steps with people that i'm sponsoring but i also i mean in full disclosure i sponsor a lot of i sponsor a lot of people right now who aren't technically like in aa or na and i i don't you know what i what i don't do and look it's not for me to say what anybody should do in sponsorship so nobody should take this as i i don't ever like to start sentences with the words you should because <laughs> that's that's none of my business right and 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 but what i would say is um as a sponsor of a lot of people through the years if someone adamantly comes to me and says i really would like your help but i i, I don't want to do AA or I don't want to do NA or I don't want to do a 12 step program. I'm like, fine, no problem. Let's, here's what we'll do. Ultimately, I end up doing the same thing. They just don't know it. You know, the difference is, you know, I will take them through a, a version of, you know, understanding that, you know, they, they, they need to admit and take responsibility for, um, you know, making the commitment to a different life and they and they do admit and recognize that the way they're living life isn't sustainable so i mean you can change i'm a wordsmith i'll change the language and you get people to like basically end up doing the 12 steps without having to like somehow say that they're in aa and i i just don't there's no doubt that 12 step recovery has helped more people than any other single thing but i also freely say it's not for me to say that there's not other ways to get sober and for me running was an equal part for me like i i don't think i would have survived 12-step recovery alone 
if that was the only thing I was allowed to do and I didn't have the physical outlet of running, maybe I would have gotten, maybe, you know, maybe I still would have gotten some traction, but I needed the physical release. I needed all the things that running does for me and did for me back then. I needed those things and the community uh, along with the structure of uh, a step program. Um, and I look, I've, I've also, again, over 30 years, I've gone through phases where I've gone months or even a couple of years without actually attending. And eh, I don't think that's probably true. I don't think I've ever gone that long. But I mean, I've gone through periods of time where it was where going to actual meetings wasn't a priority. But I did have other uh, I fielded emails and phone calls and I did one on one sessions with people that I was trying to help. And I always had a sponsor. And I mean, so I still I still kept that constant contact with people, you know, in recovery. And, and I think, again, that's the that's the hardest thing for people to do is. And this is, I think, an important um, piece of this. The people in your life and for those people in new recovery, you know, I, I and long term recovery. I think this is I just think this is true. We can be shocked sometimes by the people who we think should be our biggest supporters and the people who love us the most, yet they end up pulling us back into the abyss. And some of that is because uh, those people are afraid that we're going to leave them. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a strange thing. I mean, people in my old party, my drinking group, you know, they saw how much I struggled and the mistakes I made, yet they, you know, would say, hey, you know, you don't need to quit. You just need to slow down, you know? And I'm like, dude, have you been, have you been watching me? Like, <laughs> have you been watching this train wreck for 20 right. years? <laughs> don't you think I would have done that by now if I, if I could have? And, and the same is true. I think for, you know, you, you're a guy that has big ideas, you know, you can tell somebody, Hey, I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to run a hundred miles or I'm going to run across the United States. And there will be people who generally speaking, love and support you who will say, oh, you know, that's just, that's not a great idea or whatever. And I mean, I'm, I'm like, do not listen to those people. And very often their biggest fear is that you will go on to do this. The best example, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting myself. The best example I have is I've helped a lot of people lose weight. Like that's a thing. And very often, very often couples will or even best friends will decide they're both maybe had some struggles with weight and so they want to go in the into this challenge together right so they want me to help coach them to lose weight one of the first things i say is look you are two individual people you have a chance and a choice to support each other in this goal but at some point one of you is going to be more successful than the other one and, you know, the minute the minute the guy loses 25 pounds and the woman, you know, has only lost three pounds and she starts looking at him like, oh, he's going to leave me because, you know, he's losing all this weight. And he looks so much better and screw this. I'm not going to do it like it's the it's just a, it's a hard dynamic. And the same thing happens in recovery is people will you know, want to pull you back into their life because they just, they know that if you, if you actually get better, you might very well leave them. You're also touching on something that when you change, uh, you as a, as a person, you're shifting the people dynamics within your life. Like, so your wife or partner, she may be used to you, you know, needing her to be your mother or, and all of a sudden you're responsible and she's like, Oh my God. Right. Like, what am I, who am I? Right. Like, and so a lot of it is subconscious and you see this a lot in recovery where the dynamic shift, people may divorce, they may separate or they may hold on and get through it. Um, but it is, it is tricky. And a lot of it is unconscious. I'm, I'm curious, Charlie, do you ever get this question? Cause I get this question a lot. If I, they, people say, RJ, if you could drink successfully, would you drink? Or like, 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 you know, like, yeah, right. So uh, how do you 
answer that question. Like, like, cause people like, okay, you're 30 years sober. Like, and you know, they don't get the whole piece around addiction and whatever. And they're like, could you have a drink tomorrow? What's your answer to that? I love the question and I do get it all the time. And it's, it's, it's funny. And I, I, depending on who I'm talking to, I, I pick how provocative to be, but, but to your other, to, I wanted to say one thing about the other comment you made, like I, my first marriage didn't survive my sobriety. So it's weird. Most people think that, you know, relationships crumble because of addiction. Mine crumbled because of sobriety, because I, you know, like you said, I no longer needed a caretaker. I didn't, I didn't need somebody to call my boss and tell him that I was sick or to make excuses about why we couldn't show up for the thing. And, you know, and I had years and years of that. And, and, and she, my first wife grew up with, uh, a an alcoholic father. So she was very comfortable with the craziness. Your just, just with that, your story in your book, and I don't want to take her inventory, but like she gave you a lot of rope. Oh yeah. Like a mad codependent, it seemed like just a lot of rope. Like you just did what you wanted. You did what you wanted when you wanted, how you wanted. We went to therapy. We went to therapy and I love, you know, I love her. She's the mother of my kids. We get along great. We actually never argued. I mean, even, even during, she wasn't happy about getting divorced, but I, five or six years into my sobriety, I was able to, to like say, you know what? I, I don't love this person. I love her for being the mother of my kids and the human being that she is, but I couldn't, I could no longer picture myself being at 35 years old or whatever I was then, I could no longer picture myself being married to this person for the rest of my life. And I, I, I just knew that I wouldn't be happy. Like I couldn't make that happen. And so, you know, and so I ended it and it was the right decision for both of us. And she's now like happily married to her college sweetheart. I mean, everything worked out just fine. And we, we co-parented well um, together. But I mean, you know, to your, to your other question of, uh, I'll get it all the time. Couldn't you just have one beer? And I actually always say to somebody who asked me that question, I'm like, yeah, I could like right now, chances are like, I think a hundred percent, 99% that if you handed me a beer and I decided to drink it, I could just have that beer. And I could probably do that tomorrow. I could maybe do it for a week or a month or a year. I might even do it for a pretty long time, like one beer a, a day. That might last for a little while, but absolutely 100%, no doubt about it. Their day would come where I would have two beers, 100%. And, and then the day would come where I would have four beers and then I'd have all the beers and then, you know, I'd be dialing my Coke dealer from 30 years ago. You know, and that that is I mean, that's actually the easy part for me is to inevitably, you know, to take that all the way to the final thing. And and really also to I mean, I freely admit too, my my who I am is actually tied up in, you know, sobriety and and being a sober person and like to lose that person would be really weird. I mean, and 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 it's, you know. The obsessive part of me, I mean, I still, here's the other thing. I feed my addict every single day. I just don't feed it with drugs and alcohol. And so the addictive nature that those of us who are lucky enough to be addicts, the addictive nature that we have is the whole reason that we're actually good at other things. Like without that obsessive quality where I can't focus on anything else except that thing until I get it done, without that quality, which is deeply related to my addict, I probably wouldn't be good at anything. And so I'm grateful every day for the addiction. And I so I don't mean it on like a 12 step, like you people you hear people say I'm a grateful recovering addict. I'm grateful for the addiction, not necessarily the well, not all the pain that it caused, but 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 some of it. But it is the recognition that like that that part of me is what makes me good as a runner. It makes me good at um, business. Sometimes <laughs> it makes me good at, 
you know, and, and it, and it also can steer me wrong, you know, because I get fixated on things, um, in a way that, um, not everyone relates to. And occasionally I'll force something to, I mean, the nice thing is I'm getting older and, and it is, I've mellowed on that. Like I'll, I'll pick a project. Hell, you've heard me talk about it. I've been trying to make my Dead Sea to Mount Everest project happen for 10 years now. And I get close every year or two. And I got really close this year. And I actually think, you know, that next year I'm going to get there. But the difference is it doesn't, um, it doesn't destroy me if it doesn't happen. The, the addict part of me back in my 30s, if I didn't get my way, I, it, it really, really dug deeply into my psyche. And like, if, if a thing didn't happen, I, no matter what I said, what spiritual place I found, and like, I could pretend like, oh, well, you know, it just wasn't the right time in the universe and blah, blah, blah. But deep down, I was like going, damn, you know, it's killing me. This isn't happening. Nothing, nothing kills me. Nothing affects me that way anymore. I do my best. When I get fired up about something, I do my best to make it happen. I accept the challenges. I'll try to overcome those hurdles. And even when I like, just like with Dead Sea to Everest, if I have to set it aside uh, for the time being, it's still there. That opportunity is there for me and it may never happen. I may go the rest of my life and it may not happen. Or maybe I'll help somebody else do it someday. But just the promise of it is actually what helps to drive me and keep me fired up and and focused. And I don't feel like a failure if I don't get it done. With your um, your Sahara run, like you 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 know, it was well articulated in your book. Like, I think part of why you got through it was because you're an addict. Like you were absolutely dogged with all the challenges of getting that shit done, the organizing, the funding. Like, I don't know if you weren't Charlie Engel, if you would have been able to get that done, but you had a lot of self tied up in that project, right? Like it was like life or death, right? It, it came across as it was super critical, right? And that's not uncommon to the addict and alcoholic. And I suppose what you're saying, and that, you know, alludes to the earlier part, how we commenced this conversation that even if Charlie Engel couldn't run one day, you'll find a way to evolve because that's kind of the path that you're on. It's touching on the whole controlled drinking part. I had a guest on my show who is the head of smart recovery in Australia. And I just found the whole concept. If I'm to be honest, like I appreciate and I respect this all for, like, but because it challenged the way I view uh addiction and you know i've heard rich roll and i've seen him on an interview kind of have this struggle as well like we're abstinence people and it just i couldn't wrap my head around like so she said to me uh my guess she was like you know most people in addiction probably don't realize it that they could successfully have one or two and I disagree. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we wouldn't consider that the real, the, the clause is always the real alcoholic, right? The real alcoholic. No one really knows what that is because it's subjective. But the question I have is when you know that something's destroyed and absolutely obliterated you and you still feel the need to do it, what's that say about your relationship with it? And I think that's the, that's the kicker there, right? Like when someone asks me, oh, can you have a drink? And I, if, and I said, if I were to have a drink, knowing what it's done and what's at risk, my two children, my wife, like for me to still take that drink for me says there's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I think anyone that tries to dance with the bear <laughs> after the bear has been put in the cage, it's like, well, why? Right. No, and I, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, there look, there are nuances. You know, I work with I work with the top VA hospital, Veterans Administration Hospital in the country down in Lake Nona, Florida, in, in the Orlando area. And, you know, there's 120 patients in the substance use disorder wing, and um 80% of them are homeless. And if my only metric was abstinence, you know, I would have a hundred percent failure rate for the most part. And so 
you know, I have to, there's me and my sobriety, and then there's everyone else, and, and maybe I'm trying to help them. So even with Rich, I mean, he's a 12-step guy, and, and uh, Russell Brand, and I've listened to their conversations, and like, I, it's, look, I mean, I, I mean, it's kind of white people problems that I like to say. <laughs> it's very, it's very easy to say, you know, that race doesn't matter if you're, if you're white. And again, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be going down that no, road. No, 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 but, but like, I, it's very, yeah, I get it. It's, it's very easy to say that something doesn't matter if you're already in the safe majority place. Like you've already got it whipped. Therefore, this is the way to do it. And I know those guys and they're, they're open-minded enough to like, we'd have this same conversation, but I've, I've also had the good fortune to be able to work with homeless shelters and work in places where if abstinence was my goal and I like kicked people out of my meetings or I said, hey, look, you know, don't come back until you make the commitment to sobriety, meaning meaning abstinence would be the implication. I lose a lot of people. And so I think it's always important to remember that. Um, <laughs> We say 12-step recovery is, like AA, is the most successful. And I think it probably is. I mean, the, the anonymous nature of it makes it pretty hard. Nobody can actually say what those numbers look like. But, like, if 10 people come in the program, we, you and me actually don't know whether eight of them just keep drinking and dying. And then the two that are, that are successful, you and me, we're out here talking about it. So it feels like the whole the whole AA world must be successful. And so I, I, I think that it's, to, your, to the biggest point that you're making, I cannot for the life of me imagine what value I would find in having a drink or what, that would torture me every single day from that point on. I would then be asking myself, should I have another one today? Or the next time somebody, it's so much simpler and easier in my life to just not have that ever be a choice. Plus, I love, uh, hey, man, I'm the king of sparkling water. You know, I mean, I, I love, you know, I'm like, a, I'm like a sparkling water snob. Like, I think I'll, it's like, it, there's a similarity with beer. I felt when I got sober, I, I was on the sparkling waters. And it seems to be a common, maybe it's the fizziness. Yeah. Something about it I love, and I love the flavors, and like, and look, there are some, I've got a friend who runs a very, very high-end 12-step um, recovery program, and they they actually, look, they don't do everything the way others do, and they they have mocktail parties, you know, and they'll, they'll make these sort of crazy, fancy drinks. They're not meant to, like, taste like alcohol, of course, or anything like that. They're just fancy juices with cayenne pepper and this and that and i mean it's it's fun it's nice to have a bunch of people standing around sort of drinking um you know a fancy looking drink and and feeling normal and you know i mean it is that it is the never-ending question is what is the where's that line drawn and i and i think the most important thing is it's an individual individual it is going to always be an individual choice and no nobody else can relate to anybody else's pain or misery exactly. Now, <laughs> I got to go in a minute, but I will tell you this. Um oh, I think we talked about it before, but like I'm I'm like I'm wearing wearables all over the place and I've started doing a lot of coaching using wearable devices with people. And so there's a couple of big announcements coming actually even in the addiction recovery space where we're using wearables for people getting out of rehab. Because I do also think that while traditional recovery is still the strongest path to long-term sobriety, there are technological ways that we can, like if I'm coaching someone, coaching I use loosely, it's life coaching. It's not, I'm not telling them how many miles to run necessarily. It's just that if I can see your um, sleep patterns and your exercise patterns and your HRV and your resting heart rate and your skin temperature, like if you're somebody in new recovery, if you're a new person in, in recovery, you've just gotten out of rehab 
and I'm seeing those uh, things, I can predict a relapse. I mean, honestly, I can. And it's not, I'm no genius. It's, it's, you see somebody who's not sleeping, um, they're not exercising, there's certain things that are happening and they're finding no balance and no recovery in their life, no strain recovery, exercise recovery, mental recovery. You know, they're headed for hard times. And if I can see that, it doesn't mean I can prevent it 100%, but at least I can reach out to that person and say, hey, I see you're not sleeping. Um, here's a Deepak Chopra meditation. Why don't you try this tonight, you know, 30 minutes before you go to bed? They might not, they might not do it, they, but they've been seen. And I think the biggest, our entire conversation today has actually been really around, in my view, around community and fellowship. and like isolation and feeling lonely in addiction recovery in addiction too but in, even in recovery those are the killers that's what will take you back out that's what will take your life is isolating and being lonely and so if there's another tool that we can use to help um eliminate bridge that gap like if I re if all I do is text you and say, hey, I see you didn't sleep well last night, dude. You know, I hope you have a better night's sleep tonight. It's you've been seen. And like all of a sudden you don't feel quite so lonely and you're like, it's brilliant. It really is. It really is. Next thing you know, sponsors will be using wearables for their sponsees. I mean, it, you should, we should be leveraging technology. Honestly, that is what I'm literally advocating for because. Certainly on the professional level, like a, a, a treatment center, because think about it, man, One when someone leaves rehab, 100% of the data that's collected after a person leaves rehab is self-reported. So in other words, even if it's back to the rehab, even if it's the even if it's a good rehab that that is really trying hard and whatever the only thing they have to rely on once that person walks out the door is the the patient or the client telling them how they feel that's pretty much all they've got to go on and we know that those first 6 months after someone leaves rehab that is the time when they have the greatest likelihood of relapse like if you can just get past that early recovery stage and so this is another tool I mean, I call it more of a communication device. I don't even care which one. Like I am, I'm on the, I'm on the advisory board for Whoop and full disclosure. But like, that's, that's just a relationship that I have. If someone comes to me and they, they've already got an Aura ring or a Fitbit or a Garmin watch or whatever, and they're willing to share their data with me, I can help. I can use that as a tool potentially to help them stay sober. And to maybe, I, I know before we finish, I, I said this last time we talked, the one thing I believe that is missing so greatly in addiction recovery is physical movement. If you're not moving your body in some way, you know, and I'm sorry, it shouldn't be an ass, but if you're outside the AA meeting smoking and then you're heading to the donut shop right after the meeting, man, you're just maybe you've delayed the inevitable by not drinking anymore, but you're still just putting, I've spent way too many years putting poison in my body and I don't want to do it anymore. It's so true. It's so true. And um, I, I think you're doing and where you're going with that is, is bang on. I've had my thoughts around that as well in terms of using that type of technology. And it's good to see and hear that you're, you're doing that. So We'll land the plane now. I just want to thank you, Charlie, so much for your time. I always enjoy having you on the show. So charismatic, fun. I learn a lot. Um, obviously, look up to you in many ways um, because of uh, the similarities and uh, the road that you've traveled and that I'm traveling. So uh, where can our audience find you, learn more about what you're doing? We know you're always doing different stuff. Just give us a, a, a plug, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. And I mean, all that you just said, I say it right back to you. I, I, the reason I say yes, anytime you ask is because I like having these conversations and, uh, hopefully they help somebody else out there, but as long as they help you and me, I'm good with that. So, um, my website is still always the, the clearing house. So it's just charlieingle.com. 
social media, you know, Instagram's the place that if you want to see what I'm doing and see videos of my cat, that's a good place to go. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I've started using LinkedIn more than I have in the past. So that's been, it's kind of become uh, a little more, I've become more active on there, partly because I like to talk about the business of recovery because it's all, I mean, the other thing I say, I mean, I say it to you and anybody else out there, it's, it's taken me a lot of years to get there, but it's okay to make a living helping other people. Like you don't, you know, I spent a lot of years thinking that if I wasn't just volunteering my time all the time, that, you know, what, what I'm doing now is I am finding ways that I think I can help people, but it's actually okay if, if through the coaching process and whatever, if I get an opportunity to, um, you know, pay my own bills that way, as long as I'm sure what my motives are, you know, it, it's okay. I mean, it's not that much different than somebody that does addiction therapy. Uh, you know, you, it's okay. So that's why I have these conversations with you and I look forward to hopefully uh, getting, getting some miles in together sometime soon. Yeah. We missed you coming down um, with Pat and Dean, but I got to catch up with them, but hopefully either here or there, man. But uh, anyways, all the best. Thanks. Yeah. All right, brother. I'll see you soon. Dude, it was great as always.